0: This week on FX Guide TV, we speak to visual effects supervisor Kevin Bailey of Atomic Fiction about flight, director Robert Zemeckis' return to live-action feature films.
1: This and more coming up next.
0: This episode is brought to you by the new October term, open now at fxphd.com. Hello and welcome back to FX Guide TV. Denzel Washington, John Goodman and Don Cheadle all star in a new film, Flight, which is a return to live action for director Robert Zemeckis. Atomic Fiction were handed the task of doing the photo effects, and Mike recently visited them at their offices in Northern California to discuss their work.
1: Good morning, Trina. Good morning, Captain Whitaker. Here's a manifest with 102 souls on board. Let's get them tucked in. We're
0: ready to push. Oh, we are in a dive. I have no control on my side. We it. Everybody brace positions. We're gonna roll it. What, what do you mean roll it? Ready? Here we go. So thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Man, you you guys are on a winner with this film. I just choked up. Like when he/she speaks, I can't want to give away the plot, but there are points in that cockpit that I was like, "Wow, it's emotionally punchy," and it's all because you guys have set the stage.
1: Well, we we feel really, really lucky to actually be working on a truly, truly amazing uh, picture. You know, between just finishing up on Looper and then working on this, you know, to have two kind of winners in the same year is kind of unprecedented for a visual effects artist. So we're psyched.
0: Yeah, a while ago when I saw uh, on opening <coughs> night, I just thought, wow, this has uh, exceeded my expectations. I mean, I just love that film to death. But as much as I want to talk about that, I want to talk about flight because it <laughs> is exceptional. So let's work our way through some of the things. I mean, uh, by all stretches at most locations, you can, you know, pay somebody something to shut it down. Not so cool to shut down an airport,
1: um, buying yeah. out an airport is pretty difficult, but I presume you got around that? (laughs) Yeah, well, it turns out buying out an airport is pretty much impossible. We actually tried in multiple (laughs) locations, you know, everything from the big boys to like really, really small local airports, and it just doesn't happen. Uh, so there are several shots in which we really had to work around it because it's important for an airplane-based movie <laughs> to be at an airport. Uh, one of the shots, which is a big establishing shot of this airport, we actually shot just off the tarmac by a private hangar. We rented a real MD-88 uh, for a foreground set dressing, essentially. So
0: that's a plane.
1: That's a real, yeah, McDonnell Douglas airplane, you know, the kind of thing that you would jump on board and fly across the country in. Look at you, you got all the jogging down. Now, oh, yeah, right? yeah, no, no. We, we had some great, uh, some great consult- on the film that educated us about everything to do with aviation. Uh, But the problem was, even though the foreground was great and Denzel had a thing to walk around and interact with, the entire background had to be created completely from scratch. So not only do we have to create all these airplanes and the terminals and the control tower and a big, big uh, runway in the background, but the weather really didn't cooperate with us on this day. Oh, so it was raining. Oh, but it was raining in the film. No, it was. It's supposed to be raining in the film, and we had rain machines turned yeah. on to actually rain on the foreground. But it was blue sky, completely sunny on that day. Um, so we had to replace the entire sky and do all kinds of treatment to the plate to get it to look like a really just dangerous, overcast, lightning-filled day. Uh, but I think the end result is actually a pretty epic one. It worked really, really well. But
0: you did get some access on the runways, <clears> right, <throat> to get some sort of material for?
1: Yeah, the, the guys at Orlando international airport were kind enough to uh, uh, grant me access with a still still camera where you, know, you could go around and shoot some pictures of the terminals and I actually just thought I was going to get some you know close pictures of the terminals they actually went as far as to put me in a truck and drive me out down a live runway we basically pulled up behind a 747 that was just taking off and uh, and then drove down the runway and snapping pictures I, was like, ah, I can't miss this opportunity um, and got a lot of great shots that uh, enabled us to not only make that establishing shot, but all the shots that you see of the airplane taxing down the runway, taking off, those are all computer generated as well. Um, and they just help us make them that much more believable. So they'll, they'll stand the test of the av- aviation buffs saying, they, they won't say, that's not what a real runway looks like, because it, it does.
0: Well, of course, this is really uh, a personal mm. drama in the sense that we're really connected to the characters, but essential uh, to that drama is what happens on the plane. And of course, Uh, You guys were brought in to do that. Now, I imagine that because that's so central to the plot, they could actually build
1: a rotating cockpit, obviously it's pretty important for the film. Um, How did that sort of work? Well, that was one of the really big challenges of this movie and Mike Lanteri, the special effects supervisor who worked on uh, little movies like Jurassic Park, um, he's actually one of the reasons I'm in the movie industry these days. Uh, but he was tasked with the challenge of, you know, how do we rotate this whole plane upside down? Um, so we actually had three different rigs for this airplane, one that did soft bouncing, one that we could mount the entire fuselage on that would shake it so you see, you know, the people's heads bobbling around, because uh, people just can't act that, you know. Yeah. That kind of physics uh, is something that you need to experience. Uh, As and Star Trek in the 1960s proved. Exactly, exactly. Not that we don't all love that stuff, but, um, and then we had another rig that we called the rotisserie. that was actually take the fuselage and rotate it 180 degrees upside down. And we could do that rotation uh, with the cockpit on its own, um, but we couldn't do the entire fuselage on its own because the entire fuselage of this real airplane that we got chopped up into pieces was too heavy to rotate uh, on its own. So we had to slice it into two halves, um, which worked great for most shots, but as you can imagine for shots where we're you know gunning down the entire fuselage, uh, it complicated things a little bit because you need to see the whole thing. So the way that we did that is we actually uh, filmed it in two elements. One where we stuck the camera in the back of this, you know, half of the fuselage and got the close part of it. And then we backed the camera up of a good 40 feet and shot kind of, you know, for the lack of a better term, through the open end of a tin can, you know, off in the distance and rotated that as close to the same speed as we could without motion control, mind you.
0: I was about to say, so to get those two turning, you'd have had to have had motion control. How'd you solve that?
1: No, it was just, uh, you know, Mike Lanteri and his team built a very kind of repeatable rig, but it wasn't exact. So we had to use optical flow retimes and a bunch of, you know, tracking and warping to get them all to fit together. But at the end of the day, when you watch the movie, nobody would ever be able to tell that, you know, these are two separate segments. Yeah, they're they're
0: moving in harmony. And, And that was presumably with Nuke? that was with Nuke. Because there was another interesting sort of, well not exactly optical flow, but certainly related trick that you Mm -hmm. did. Uh, There's a shot in the film where we start on an actor's face from one side, in one (laughs) location, end up without seeming to cut on the actor in a completely different location. Tell us how you did that.
1: Well, those are the kinds of shots uh, where Bob is in his element, you know, Bob Zemeckis, he is known for these big concept shots, and you see it in his motion capture movies where, you know, you have these three minute long shots, but you also see it in, in some of his uh, uh, live action movies, like in Contact, the shot where we go into the eye and things it's like The
0: Contact mirror shot, favorite shot of all time. Yeah, yeah.
1: it's amazing, it's amazing. Uh, and you know this is kind of one of those similar shots where it kind of is designed to mess with your brain a little bit. And yeah, so we have a camera start you know wide and come in really close on Denzel's eyes, and then when it pulls out, we're in a totally different location. And the way we did that is I had actually been at one of the Foundry's demos of Ocula a few months before. Uh, and seeing how you can give it a left eye and a right eye, and then it'll generate a disparity uh, uh, map between those two, and then you can kind of blend be- you know, blend the camera between the left and the right eye. Right, because if I wanted to change where the left
0: and right eye were, mm-hmm. I'd need to produce an interim point in, in between. Exactly, sort of so you up. want
1: less depth or more depth. You know, those tools are really handy in stereo. But of course, you're not shooting in stereo at all. No, what we decided to do is we thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool to use that technology but we're going to trick it into thinking that the A-side plate that we shot you know, two weeks before the B-side plate is the left eye, and the B-side plate, where he's in this separate location, is the right eye, and generate a disparity map between those two, and we can slide the little slider and go from one location to the other. Um, and for all intents and purposes, it worked really, really well. Um, so in a sense, you were taking <coughs> the stereo... Uh, ocula stuff and using it as a morpher yeah exactly sort of a, a morpher during a camera move you know and then really what we had to do is just make sure that both Denzel's position and the camera motion uh, were close enough again not even using motion control which was really really challenging we didn't have the budget to do that uh, that all that stuff was close enough where ocula could be tricked into thinking that these aren't two de- separate plates these are really a left and right eye pair
0: well of course, a huge amount of drama is happening in the plane as we're going into the crash <coughs> sequence. And I've got to say, it had, the, it had the energy and the, I guess, abrupt uh, kind of drama that we saw in uh, the crash sequence in Castaway, which of course is probably one of the last times that uh, this director was working live action. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you go about actually solving the problem that you sort of needed to basically be filming the world from almost every angle? To put outside the windows, I suppose.
1: Well, that is that in and of itself is a tricky problem. What made it even trickier in our particular scenario is we uh, we were scheduled to shoot aerial plates uh, from a helicopter on the first day of production. Well, the green screen inside cockpit stuff wasn't gonna be shot until weeks and weeks and weeks later. So not only did we have to capture you know this world outside, but we didn't even know how we were gonna be using it at the end of the day.
0: Right, so in a normal world, you would say that's not a dumb idea, right? Shoot the background plate and then shoot the green screen to match, but there's no way that they were gonna shoot the action to match your plate. So. No,
1: exactly, exactly. And it was very specifically, in, in, and John Gatons and Rob, Robert Zemeckis uh, were constantly rewriting that part of the script as we we, you know, came up um, to that shoot day, so there was really no way to predict exactly what it was that we needed. So we just said we got to find a way to get everything. Uh, so, uh, Don Burgess, the DP, uh, and I talked about various different ways to do this and came up with, uh, uh, this was Don's idea, it was just amazing, of mounting three red Epic cameras on the nose of a helicopter using a customized mount, this has never been done before, um, fanned out with 14 millimeter lenses on each one. And effectively what that gave us is a stitchable panorama, just like you would do with your digital SLR. but. In motion, totally synchronized, of about 240 degrees of this environment that we're flying the helicopters through. Um, so it, it 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 just it gave us all the coverage we needed um, for the most part to put outside the windows and in, in all these shots. I
0: Imagine if you're doing that, it must be kind of hard to set exposure because, of course, uh, you know you could. Be going through different things, clouds, whatever. Mm-hmm. Did you just set one exposure, and,
1: and did you have enough dynamic range? Did you shoot the HDR mode? <coughs> we did not shoot the HDR mode. We shot, you know, red, red raw, so you know we had a good amount of dynamic range that we could work with. Um, but the the operator inside, so there was the pilot and then the camera operator. The camera operator was there, you know, tweaking f-stops as we were going. So as the conditions, and it, would changed, it would do all three simultaneously. We do all three simultaneously. Yeah, That's exactly.
0: So they're basically running. So so you were tricking stereo before. This is
1: like a version of stereo. Effect, yeah. You know, but you've got three cameras now. Yeah, exactly. And so what sort
0: of forty mm lenses were you
1: using? Uh, there, were, there were uh Ultra, Ultra Prime uh, 14mm. So that's a really nice piece of glass. Yeah, and they're really compact and small. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we were using Ultra Primes and Master Primes throughout the show. So really, really nice clean footage.
0: And so that was all then stitched together to give you enough variation that you could go wherever you wanted to mm-hmm. go but you're still are basically at that point effectively producing a sky dome. Mm-hmm. Uh, you must have then had to populate inside that because uh, there was a need to fly through stuff or was that naturally happening because the helicopter was flying through Yeah, we,
1: we tried as much as we could to actually fly the helicopter through clouds and just get really dynamic shots. And this, this particular pilot, was, he was just amazing at, at doing that. Um, we did have to augment a lot of the shots though with CG clouds in the foreground because you know this plane is supposed to be going at three, 400 miles an hour. The, the helicopter- The helicopter, kind of good, yeah. No, we can only go 70 miles an hour before the, the rig started to get aerodynamic pull down and, and you know it just became useless. So uh, we did have to enhance a lot of the footage in addition to speeding it up. Uh, and we used, primarily it was Maya fluids uh, for those close clouds. Um, there were some shots where we just Weren't able to get a helicopter plate, um, in which case we used the footage as a basis for matte paintings and did full 3D matte paintings for the shots uh, with cards on clouds in the distance, or clouds on cards in the distance. Sorry, and uh, and full 3D CG clouds for coming by camera.
0: Because anyone that's seen the film, the aviator, would know that uh, based on the content of that film, not the, the making of it, you need to have clouds quite often to know what's going on in terms of movement of a plane. It, it really mm-hmm. gives the audience some references to what's going on. So I imagine there was quite a lot of, not just art directing there, but sort of almost action directing what was happening outside the windows.
1: Absolutely. We, we regularly had to have, you know, Bob would be in a call and he'd be like, oh, I want this part of the scene to be, you know, more action driven. So we would, you know, put smaller, more fast moving clouds by the window. Uh, and then there are other parts of the scene that are supposed to be kind of the, the calm parts. And, you know, we would have a bigger, slower moving cloud that was going by outside. So it really does help to set the, the mood and the, the tone of that particular part of the film. Um, one interesting thing that we did learn in doing this is that uh, clouds that are big and far away look exactly the same as clouds that are small and close and slower moving. So. The, the Getting the energy to be ratcheted up isn't just a matter of, of changing the size and speed of clouds. You, know, you really do have to kind of art direct the tempo of them um, because otherwise it's, it's hard to tell where things actually are in depth. So it was a, it was a real kind of interesting thing to get our head around you know, that you know, 150 or so shots that we had to put CG clouds in, you know, what actually worked.
0: So I don't normally like to ask people about working with a director, I don't like that line of questioning, but in this particular case, you're working with a director who's come back to live action. Uh, We love all his films, but the last few, of course, for a while now, have really been fully CG. Do you think that that informed his opinion differently for working with live action again.
1: Well, I definitely think that uh, a having worked with him on a few of those motion capture films before uh, working with him in live action, it sort of a, is the flip flop of you know what most people have experienced with him. So it was it was really interesting seeing uh, how some of these filmmaking principles that he uh... was able to use without any limits on him uh... how he kind of adapted when he does have physical limitations put on him and how freaking ingenious he is at still getting really amazing shots and just telling the story in a, a phenomenal way and uh, so for me, a lot of the challenge was you know, in, in supervising the show. And we, Atomic Fiction, had the good fortune of being uh, the, the, the sole vendor on this, on this movie. And we had the help of a bunch of uh, outsourcing vendors as well that, that really uh, did great things for us. But you know, having the responsibility for the full thing, uh, it, it, was, it was a really fascinating experience to work with him uh, and, and you know, in this sort of a little bit lower tech World, but you know he hadn't been working in live action for a long time. So things like you know how do we do a two-way cell phone conversation? Um, that that problem didn't exist in shooting a movie you know 12 years ago. Um, so there were a lot of kind of new issues that came up. Um, In shooting a live-action movie with him uh, that we all kind of had to like learn together about so So I think that overall it was just like it was an experience that was uh, Truly unique and I'm so grateful for because Bob was one of my childhood heroes Yeah, I mean
0: he's an incredible director. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely and and just so fascinating from an educational standpoint for me And seeing how he applied some of these sort of like these, you know, very Zemeckis Principles that I'd seen in motion capture to live-action filmmaking
0: Now, of course, he's very comfortable with the technology now. So there's Mm -hmm. a scene at the end that I believe, I mean, it looked completely photoreal, uh, of the, not the end of the film, but the end of the crash sequence, Mm -hmm. um, where (coughs) I would assume he was very comfortable with going to a much higher CG shot solution that it certainly looked like on screen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that 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 shot, it was a completely computer generated background because you know he wanted the, the exterior of the plane or the interior of the plane rather kind of crushing it around Denzel as So this is Denzel's actual sort of slow motion hit. The, this is his actual slow motion hit at the very end of the crash scene. And we just shot we shot him on green screen uh, with you know a little kind of foam yoke there for reference because his head goes forward and, and it hits it. Uh, but everything around him is, is created in, in CG, and it was actually a really great uh, uh, experience of working with the team. Pretty much, you know, every member of our team touched that shot in one way or the other. You know, Brian Freisinger, the, the modeler, he modeled and animated it. Uh, Mike Terpstra did a lot of the matte painting outside the window, and he's he composited it as well. Our comp soup, uh Wei Lee had a ton to do with with making sure that everything was integrated well, and you know, really just throughout the entire shot. Um, people just, you know, gave that a lot of love and made sure that it was up to Zemeckis standards. And that, that in a way, was part of the hardest uh, uh, thing on this on the show is just making sure that, coming from this world of working in hundred eighty million dollar movies uh, and just that quality bar is so high, uh, making sure he received that same quality bar on a much much lower scale and a lower budget. Um, that
0: actual impact shot was. Interestingly given a lot more gravitas by the fact that the sound had sort of basically dropped yeah. when the engines dropped Which is interesting because normally you think you would need the sound to give it drama But it also meant that we were really focused on the shot and we've seen that live-action set many times in the last couple of <laughs> shots mm-hmm. So you had sort of nowhere to hide we were no longer shaking and it's all going to be motion blurred it was all of our attention on was So... And slow
1: motion. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Did it take long to get the realism? How, How did you reference? Did you take HDRs? I mean, how did you get that Level of realism.
1: Yeah, I mean, we took a bunch of HDRs from inside the cockpit, but this is sort of a unique scenario in which there was a lot of dirt coming up over the windows, and you know, it was a very sort of actiony shot. Uh, so we actually shot a lot of practical elements of dust and little glass pieces. We had little pieces of silicone that we threw in front of green screen and, and extracted and put in there. Uh, and then it was just a lot of uh, going in and just tweaking lighting, little bits here and there, and you know, just really iterative process. What was your renderer of choice? Uh, I was V-Ray. Right. So we rendered. Uh, all of our 3D in V-Ray for, for Maya, um, you know, and then matte painting, uh, we use 3DS Max uh, and V-Ray predominantly to render our V-Ray's a really nice look, isn't it? It's, a, it's an amazing look. And the thing we love about V-Ray uh, that I think has them head over heels, uh, uh, you know, or has us head over heels for them, is, is that uh, the tools that are kind of wrapped around V-Ray Uh, are so far advanced you know it's not just that the renderer is good it's that the integration into 3ds max and Maya is really really far advanced so it's it's easy to pick something up and get a result really really quickly but it's also easy to sort of get really complex with it and come up with good technical solutions to you know data management issues and things like that so
0: well plus you were helped by the fact that you could
1: render in the cloud right? yes we were absolutely helped by the fact that we could render in the cloud and uh, you know, we, we were actually able to use rendering in the cloud to our advantage with, with some of the shots, both on, uh, on flight and some of the other projects that we've worked on, where we actually are offloading data uh, in you know, proxy geo caches and in geometry animation caches. Uh, so a lot of the data goes up into the cloud, and it sits there, and we don't have to re-upload it until it changes. So the big amounts of data are in the cloud, We're only uploading a small scene file every time we want to render and then rendering it. So we're actually able to use V-Ray scene management and uh, some of the geometry caching to make the cloud workflow even smoother.
0: So let me ask you this. I first came to Atomic Fiction not long after you'd first opened. One of the things I was really impressed about was your use of cutting edge technology. And it seemed to me that maybe this was a good uh, film to discuss because I understand that the shot count actually increased dramatically though you never moved location or suddenly knocked out walls
1: yeah well we uh so you're absolutely right the show started out as about 128 shots and by the end of it uh through the creative process and editorial and all that kind of stuff and some great ideas that bob had for really cool shots uh expanded up to 400 shots so our production schedule was about four months And to go from planning for 128 shot to planning uh, for a 400 shot show, all in a really, really tight time span, is difficult. And we did have to crew up for it, um, but the part that was really just amazing, and this would not have been possible had we not been using cloud computing, is scaling your 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 local infrastructure from a facility that can do 150 shots to a facility that can do 400 on the same time scale is you know that's tripling the size of your local infrastructure and that just can't happen like that Um, that takes you know months of planning and bringing an ac and making sure that you have the space and like you know securing the financing for getting all that equipment all that kind of stuff it would have been impossible we would actually have to say sorry bob we can't do this extra work we're going to have to help you find somebody else to do it well, we didn't have to do that because we are using uh, Zinc and the Amazon Cloud to do all of our heavy lifting. So we could actually, within a day, or less than a day, within an hour, we could have the infrastructure to do this 400-shot show uh, rather than having to spend months and months planning.
0: Yeah, it's a funny thing most people don't realise, but you you touched on there, that idea of ramping up with AC alone because you're not only just talking about the power that goes to the farm, it's the power that goes to the massive air conditioning units that go to the farm and then there's the structural supports to carry the weight of the incredibly heavy air conditioning you want to put on top of your building (laughs) and it just keeps building and building and building and that that is like almost at planning permission level like a problem it's it's definitely not something you can ramp up in an hour
1: oh absolutely not and not only that uh... but a lot of people you know, do focus on the ramp up, because the ramp up is really, really hard to get all the stars aligned to, to have that kind of computing power. But what people forget is that you want to ramp down as well. You know, after, after flight, uh, you know, we had a bunch of small projects during the summer that weren't very computationally intensive. So uh, because of the fact that we're using Zinc in the cloud, we're able to scale that farm down back to literally zero from 400 machines at one point down to zero at the next and not incur all these like, insane costs as a result of you know, the equipment that we have, the AC, the power, all the stuff that we paid, you know, we would have paid to put in, um, we don't have to carry any of those costs, which is awesome for us because it means we don't go broke. Uh, it's awesome for our clients, uh, the next client along, because they're not gonna be burdened with this cost of unused infrastructure. And possibly old infrastructure, let's face it. And possibly old infrastructure. Yeah, we always, always have the newest, hottest stuff.
0: So let me ask you a question about that what were you actually running on sync because you know most people think of a render farm as just purely a render farm for rendering 3D, mm-hmm. but you were using it for more than just that, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. We were using Zinc for everything. Uh, we were using Zinc for all of our Nuke composites. We were using it for our you know, Maya uh, 3D renders, uh, both in V-Ray, which you know, we did all of our airplane and a lot of our matte painting uh, work through. Uh, you know, the, the cloud rendering in the cloud, uh, which is kind of haha rendering clouds in the cloud. But uh, all that stuff was, was being done through Zinc. Um, the only things that we weren't doing through Zinc, there was a, a small amount of uh, effects work that was done in 3DS Max, um, at, but you know, Windows support is coming for Zinc soon. So uh, that was the only stuff that we did locally. Everything else was, was in the cloud. So genuinely, we did 400 shots, we did the whole show through the cloud.
0: No one could have landed that plane like I did. Thanks Mike. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, use at fxguidenews, or on Facebook, just go to facebook.com slash fxguide, where we post not only FX Guide, but also FX PhD news and updates. Well, until next time, I'm Angie Dale. See ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.